a strange story in the Bible. And we're kind of going to go back into to, um, one of the days in Jesus's ministry and see this encounter he has with a man and how this man's life is changed moving forward. And so we're going to read through this story. And as we read through, we're going to stop and pause and just see what we can glean from the scripture this morning. All right, so we're reading from Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, and when it says they, it's talking about Jesus and his disciples. They are doing ministry, they're kind of going around to different towns, and Jesus is meeting with people, healing them, talking with them. Um, So, this is Jesus and his disciples. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. And so before we go any further, I just want to say this was a Greek pagan city. They have crossed over. They are no longer in um, a Jewish city. This would be a Hellenistic Greek society. And this was known as the Decapolis, which was made up of 10 cities, 10 different cities made up this region. And so it would be very unusual for um, Jewish people to go here. It would not be something they do as part of their culture to go to um, a city that is Gentile. So what Jesus is doing with his disciples is already very unusual. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain. Because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For Jesus had told him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked him. My name is Legion, he answered, because we are many. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us into the pigs that we may enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. So let's pause here. This isn't the end of the story. But let's pause here and acknowledge what a strange story this is. Okay? And I just want to say, if you are new here, or you're not a Christ follower, or you're not someone that would consider yourself religious, I can appreciate how unusual this story must be to hear. And so what we have is someone, a man who was so mentally unwell, mentally ill, that he was an outcast to society. And that in and of itself is not hard to imagine because we still have that. We still have many people who have um, such extreme mental illness that they cannot care for themselves and um, we have that still going on today. But what is probably unusual is to consider that it, was pos- that it was a supernatural thing going on, a supernatural being that was tormenting and controlling him. And so I can appreciate how strange that must be to hear if you consider yourself a non-religious person. Um, so if someone brought you here today and you were like, what in the world is going on? You can turn to that friend who brought you. You can turn to that neighbor or that coworker, and you can say, 
how strange. <laughs> so go ahead, say, how strange this is, this, this thing you brought me to today. And if you're the Christian friend that brought them and is like, why in the world of all the scriptures in the Bible did Aslan pick this story for a Sunday morning? If you're the friend that brought someone that's maybe not religious, you can turn to that friend and say, yes, it is peculiar. <laughs> Let's just have this moment. Let's acknowledge it. It's okay because um, Christians can forget the strangeness of the Bible, especially if you were raised in it. If you were raised in this from, from childhood, you're like a, de a, a tortured man cutting himself, running around a graveyard. Classic bedtime story. <laughs> and we're just like, sure. Well, maybe the coworker you brought or the neighbor is like, cool, 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 cool. Looking around like, where are the exits of this building? This is very strange. But so it's okay to acknowledge this is a strange idea for some of you in this room. And I, but I think it's helpful to note this because this is one thing that makes a Christian's point of view different from a non-religious person's point of view. And so it's, it's good to note that, that as a Christian, we believe that there is a spiritual reality beyond what we can see physically. And so that's one thing that maybe marks the difference between your Christian friend and your non-religious friend is that we do think there's a spiritual realm that exists. We believe there's a God. We believe there's angels and other, other beings. So we have that. And before I move on in the story, I also want to say, I am not suggesting that all mental health issues come from an unclean demonic spirit. There are many mental health issues we wrestle with and we will wrestle with because of many reasons. Our brain chemistry, our body makeup, our sometimes personality proclivities, neurodiversities, and I, I don't want you to think I'm painting with a broad stroke everything. I don't believe that because scripture shows us that we're going to wrestle with mental health issues. We see King David, read the Psalms, that man was high, high, low, lows, often wrestling with his emotions and depression and anxiety. So please don't think that I'm saying all mental health issues come perhaps from an unclean spirit. But as a Christian, if we look at the text, we will see that there are times that Christians believe that sometimes what someone is wrestling under, this man was so unwell, he could not live in society. He was tormenting himself. He had supernatural strength. And so we see that there are times where people may be oppressed by something in the spiritual realm. And so this is what Jesus encounters this day. Let's keep going. Verse 14, the men who tended them, okay, so the pig, let's just recap. <laughs> Jesus confronts this man, this man's like, uh, or this, he casts this demon out of this man, the demon goes into the pigs, the pigs run off a cliff into the ocean. Okay, so the men who tended the pigs ran off and reported it in the town, in the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described it to them, what ha had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told them about the pigs. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. I think it's interesting to note here that the people that did not personally encounter Jesus, the people that didn't have a personal experience with him, their reaction was fear. And it's very easy for us sitting on this point in history, looking back, reading this account, it's very easy for us to be like, oh man, 
They missed it. They and kind of feel disappointed and shocked, like, how did they not see what was happening? This man was just delivered. And instead of rejoicing in this miracle, they tell Jesus to leave. They kick him out of the town. But let me frame it in a different way for you, maybe. Let's, let's put some more perspective to this. If you, if you study the region of the Decapolis, pigs were one of the main exports of that area. So that means it made money. That was their profit. And so this teacher from another religion, from another side of the sea, comes to their town, hangs out with the town outcast, and the result is a humongous loss of profit. So I was thinking about this just in personal terms. My husband and some men here in this room, they co-own a business. They co-own a, a window and door business. And they have a humongous warehouse with full of hundreds of thousands of dollars of profit in it. And so I was trying to think this week, I was like, man, if David, or if I was in David's shoes, if he came to work tomorrow, Monday morning, and before he gets to the warehouse, if the warehouse guys came out and they were like, before you come in, let's chat. Uh, something happened this, this weekend. Uh, you know the homeless man that kind of hangs out on the corner. He's kind of, you know, talking to himself a lot of times. Can't, okay, he, he came by. They just happened to come by our warehouse. And this guy who said he was a teacher, he came in here too. And they were talking. And um, the homeless man kind of freaked out a little bit, ran through the, prop, the warehouse, and destroyed every window and door in our warehouse. They're all smashed up. They're all damaged. Uh, so, thoughts on that? <laughs> you know, and and if you want, he's still inside. This man and and the man is is still inside. But here's the silver lining. Silver lining, the homeless man seems better. <laughs> so, okay. I, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I don't think, David, or I'll, be, I'll say myself if I were in his, I don't think I'd go in the warehouse and be like, let's chat. I want to hear your story. I, I think that I would be more like the townspeople that are like, just go. Please, please just go. I, I, I'm not interested in the story. I'm not interested in what just happened. Just please leave. Because I think there was a real sense of this man has just ruined what I've built my life on. Get, just get out of here. Just please go before you mess up something else. And so I want to pause here and just say, when Jesus comes into your life, you lose control of the things that you built your life on. Now, did we ever really have control of over anything? No. But there is this sense, if you're not a Christ follower, you know, everyone has kind of like what they make the center of their life. Maybe it is building wealth. Maybe it is business. Maybe it's your education. Maybe it's your sexuality. Maybe it's this idea that my nuclear family is the most important thing to me. And, you know, no one, whatever you've built your life on, whatever you've made your identity, when Jesus comes in and when you say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, Jesus may send that thing that you've built your identity on barreling over the side of a mountain to drown in the ocean. But that's what you're saying when you're saying, Jesus, you are coming in and you are Lord. So suddenly, I find myself identifying maybe more with the townspeople than I thought originally than I would. All right, let's keep going. So they asked Jesus to leave. They're like, you just, just, just get out of here before you ruin our town's profit even more. 
So as Je- so Jesus is like, okay. So as he was getting to the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. This is important to note because we said the people that didn't experience Jesus directly were just on the peripheral. Their reaction was fear. Their reaction was like, oh, this is such a mess. The person that does personally encounter Jesus doesn't want to leave him doesn't want Jesus to go. It's so life-giving to encounter Jesus and to make him Lord of your life that you are okay with the ramifications of what shifts have to happen in your life. So, Jesus did not let him. It's interesting. Curious and curiouser goes the story. So this guy gets, gets delivered He's begging Jesus, let me follow you. Don't let me leave you. Don't make me go back to the town where everyone probably hates me. Nobody likes me. People are probably mad at him. And um, the first few moments in relationship with Jesus, Jesus is like, no. Nah. Interesting. You'd think this would be the perfect guy, the perfect guy to join the team. Let's keep going. What's Jesus say to him? but told him, go home to your people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. And so Jesus says, no, 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 don't come with me. Go tell your story. Go back to town. Go start telling your story. Now listen, this is a man that probably knows very little to nothing about this religion, about God, about the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is, this is a, to, to all that we know, this is a Gentile. This is not someone who is a part of this faith. And so he doesn't say, well, come hang out with me for a year. Come take this class. Come do this thing. He doesn't send a disciple with them. Boy, that to me strategy I always like thinking of strategy that's a dynamic duo you have the story you disciple you have the knowledge go go with this guy and you guys will be like the wham bam team he doesn't he just tells this guy go home he doesn't send a disciple with him he doesn't know what this man knows other than the story he has of what Jesus has just done for him and I want to just take this moment to say that you that Jesus says, go tell your story to a man who has no theological knowledge or special training. And that's significant because we want this church to know that you are the missional community of the church. You are the missional community. And I say we, myself included, but you are the church out there, out of these walls. We come here together once a week and it's good to do that. We fellowship together and we, we establish, we say, God, you are first in our week. And so we come to church and we have a time, an hour where we get together, we read scripture, we encourage each other. But the mission, the mission of the church takes place six days a week out there. Amen. You are the church. I am the church. We are the missional community of the church. And so we get sent out. And one of the major ways we can do that is by sharing your story, sharing your testimony, living out what Christ has done in your life. And people seeing that, people seeing, you know, it doesn't really, let me say this. Our church, we are very, I've said this before and we'll say it again and again and again moving forward. 
Our church is very purposed in why we have teachers on rotation here. I didn't speak last week and I won't be speaking next week. We have a rotation of, of speaking pastors. And the reason we do that is because we don't ever want this church to be centered around a person. We don't want this coming, people coming because they want to hear what Pastor Peter Brunton has to say or Mark Evans or you got to come here, you got to come here, Crystal, you got to hear her. We want to be very clear that we, you guys are the church. There's no like special knowledge. We are the church outside these doors, outside these walls. And um, I want, to, I want to stop here and, and, and say something that I learned recently on this. This is a scripture I've studied many times. We actually use this scripture on the women's encounters. This is familiar for a lot of you. But something new that I learned this week, as I was, I was reading commentaries, I was listening to a Bible teacher talk on this, and he said something I had never put together before. And so um, he said that the Decapolis, this specific area, was only mentioned, Jesus going there two times. The first time is this story that we read, Mark 5, where Jesus heals this man. The second time that it mentions Jesus going back to the Decapolis is in Mark 7. So two chapters later, I don't know how much time is between those two, but it comes after. And in 731, it says Jesus went back to the, De um, the Decapolis to minister. And then in 8, a few verses later, the start of 8, it says that Jesus feeds 4,000 people who had come out to see him, to learn from him, to meet him. This is significant because the only person we know in that region that knew who Jesus was was the demon-possessed man who was healed. He went and he told his story over and over and over and to the point that 4,000 people were curious to come here. Now, I can't know what's not in there, maybe, but we do know that the disciples were not sent here. The disciples were sent on mission uh, to go to the lost tribe of Israel. So we know the disciples did not come here. So all we know is that this man who was healed, by the time Jesus came back, 4,000 Greek pagan non-believers were so curious that they came out to learn about this teacher named Jesus. That is amazing. This man who had no training, no experience, a terrible reputation, he is the one that Jesus uses to help change one of the most broken, lost societies in that area. When Jesus stepped foot into that land, into that area, he didn't say, let's, let's go find the political leaders Let's go, let, let's go find the business owners of this area. We've got to find the people that are the most influential, that have the most pull with the people. Now, I'm not dogging business owners. We are business owners. I'm not. You have influence. You already have influence to some level. You have stature. You have a reputation. What's so compelling about the story is that when Jesus steps foot into this land, he meets with the town outcast. He spends, time, he spends time with the town reject. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity so compelling. Even if you don't believe in it, even if you don't agree with it, what makes it so compelling is that it's for the outcasts. It's for the outsider. It's for the rejects. It's for the addicts. It's for the broken. It's for the adulterers. It's for the marginalized. It was Jesus was spending time with a man who was ceremonially unclean. He was living in a graveyard. 
Christianity is for the outsider. And I love that Jesus wasn't going to try to find the person that might have the most influence in human thinking, but he ministers to this man, and this man's story changes a city. This man's story brings uh, the good news of Jesus to that entire area. And so we, when we think about that we are the missional community of the church, it's our job to go out of here and, and to be Christ to a world out there, the world that doesn't know who Christ is or what, why they need Christ. It's easy to maybe think, well, if I had that kind of testimony, <laughs> yeah, I think I could make a real difference too. Like, that is an incredible story. Um, but I just want to encourage you that if you are saved, if you have accepted Christ, then you have a story. If you were spiritually dead and now you're spiritually alive, then you have a testimony. And comparison will kill your story. If you, if you sit there and you fret and you think, oh, my story's not that exciting because I grew up in church and I don't know, I just didn't do any of the crazy stuff that makes people you know, interested. Or if on the other side, if you're like, gosh, I've done so many horrible things. I had to hit like below bottom before I saw Christ. And I'm just, it's just embarrassing. I don't want to, either way you squint comparison will kill your story before fear ever gets a chance to, before you ever even have to push through the, the, maybe the uncomfortable nature of talking about how your life has changed because of Christ. And when we allow comparison to stop us, the enemy is winning because he knows that the revelation says uh, that they, they triumphed over the enemy because of Christ's blood from the cross and the word of our testimony. So if, he is, so if you stay convinced that it's like, ah, oh, what's the big deal about my story? Or why should I really be, be sharing that with people or looking for opportunities? There's power in it. There's power in it. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And so my encouragement to you is, if you don't think your testimony is exciting enough, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16. It has the power to, to bring salvation. And if you do have a peppery past, and, you know, maybe it's hard to just keep bringing it up to every. I don't need everyone I know to know I was riddled with anxiety. Yes, you do. <laughs> because why? Romans 1.16. It's the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So my encouragement this morning is to embrace your story. Testimony is just like the church term for story. Embrace your testimony. Start practicing it. That was Crystal's homework last week. And if you saw that in the small group, it said start sharing your story. And I thought, boy, that's such good instruction. And I wanted, I'm going to carry it on this week. And for those of you that might be newer to Christianity or newer to the faith, I really want you, and you've never really shared your testimony or you've never thought about how to put it together. Like, I don't even know how I would say that. I, I challenge you this week to write it down. What is your story? I, I think everyone should be able to say their testimony in two to five minutes, the short version of it, of how you came to Christ. Why did you, why did you decide to submit your life? To, to a God authority. What does that even mean? That's such a strange thing to say. And so for you to think about and write out, what, what was that process like for you? What is your story? And I want to challenge those of you that have been saved maybe many years, and you're like, I've been telling my story for 35 years, 45 years. I know it, I got it down. I want to encourage you, what is your testimony of the last year of sanctification? 
because I, I, um, I was at a conference a few months ago and I heard John Mark, Mark Comer say this. I thought, boy, that's really good. He said, you know, we, we, we have our testimonies of how we came to faith and those are important and those are good and we need to keep sharing those. He said, but there's kind of this tendency that after you're saved, you kind of stop sharing the stories of how God is sanctifying you and changing you. And I don't know why we do that. Maybe it doesn't seem as exciting or maybe it's harder to kind of put into words how you... Uh, you know, or growing in the fruit of the Spirit, or whatever the case may be. But I, I want to challenge us that we need to keep sharing our testimonies. We need to keep sharing even after you're saved. So my challenge to you is if you are a believer, you know your testimony of how Jesus met you, how you came to Christ, then what is your testimony of sanctification of the last six months? What's God been doing in your heart? Because that's the process of walking out faith. You know, it doesn't mean that when you get saved, you no longer have any sin that you wrestle with, any struggle that you with, wrestle with. The process of that sanctification, that process of becoming more like Jesus, means that, okay, before, uh, you know, let's say, before I had an anger problem, and so every day I would, I would have an explosion, just an outright emotional explosion. But you know what? The last few months, it's happened every other day. Or going down there, now it's once a week. That is growth. That is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And so we celebrate that. And then, you know, a year later, you look back and you're like, wow, now it's really, you know, only a couple times a month maybe I have this explosive anger. These are the, the, the stories of sanctification, how God is healing you, how you are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And so I want to encourage those of you um, that have been in the faith a while, what has God done in the last six months? We should encourage each other with these stories of how God is changing us. I'm going to end with this quote um, from John Stott. It says, Nothing shuts the mouth, seals the lips, ties the tongue like the poverty of our own spiritual experience. That feels a little stingy. I don't mean that as like a jab to end this thing. I, I mean it as encouragement. If you feel like, man, I don't really know what I would say about what God has done in me the last few months. I don't really know. I, I just want to encourage you that we keep pursuing Jesus. Keep getting in his word. Keep reading. Keep praying. Because um, if we are letting him change us, if we're letting us, him renew us, if we're trying to become more like him through the power of his spirit, then we will have things to talk about with one another. We will have ways to encourage each other. And so... Um, and I don't mean chase the spiritual high, like every moment's got to top the last one. I don't mean that. I just mean the steady plotting of someone who is pursuing Jesus. You know, I was reading scripture this morning, and I really felt convicted about this thing, and so I'm just going to talk about it. The, the steady path of following Christ. Let's stand. Let's just take a few minutes to, to be quiet. This is a practice that's good to do. This is a discipline that you can pursue as a Christian. That you just allow yourself to sit in silence for a few minutes. It's hard to do. Boy, is it hard to do. We're just like, you know, notification stuff, stuff, instant. Oh, it's like I got to have something going on. Blah, 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 blah. It's hard. It's hard to just be like, you know what? I'm going to be quiet. So I'm going to, let's do it. I don't have my phone. 
Can, can Pastor Peter, can you can you do a countdown of 30 seconds? And and when it beeps, I'll make a noise again. <laughs> Jesus, we want to make room for you in our day. We want to tell our, tell our minds and our thoughts and our schedules to just be quiet for a minute. Because we don't want to be so busy with our own stuff and our own thoughts that when you show up, we tell you to get out. Because we're scared of what of our plans that you're going to disrupt. So we make a choice to be still and to be quiet and to practice stillness and solitude. Because we want to encounter you, God. We want to hear from you. We want to give time for our fears and worries and anxiety and anger have to say, you know what? Jesus is Lord, and you come second to Christ. God, thank you that you encounter us. Thank you that you cross over cultural boundaries to come find me, to let me into the family. Father, help us when we've made idols and identities of things, and we, we start to become afraid that you might ask us to give those things up in our pursuit of following you. Forgive us, God. We are idol makers. Our hearts are always making idols. Anything that's good, we try to make it ultimate good. Forgive us, God. I love my family. I love my house. I love having friends. I love the things you've given me, but I don't want to make it the ultimate love of my life. You are my ultimate. You are the ultimate good. When this world comes to a close, it's not just our identities that go over the, the mountain into the abyss, but God, one day we will be standing on the precipice of eternity. And Father, we, we want to go with you. Thank you for saving us, God. I pray that you equip your people, your missional community to go out and do your work, to invite people into their homes, to have purposed lunches at work with coworkers, to, to share your kindness and your love with them. If there's anyone here that is not in relationship with you but is curious and wants to maybe give it a try, we pray for them right now. And if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, that might mess up some of the systems you've built, just encourage you to say right now in your heart, Jesus, I want to encounter you. I don't know what it means. I'm not sure I even know if there's a spiritual realm, another reality out of this, but I'm curious. And I want to try. God, I pray that you'd meet those people right now.
let them experience you. That they would have their good news story. Thank you, God. Amen.